and also growing up in England meant that I was taught all of the sports that just bewilder the rest of the world. Things like rugby and cricket. Don't ask me to explain the rules. I don't think anybody understands them. It's just an excuse for a picnic. Uh, but all in all, I had a, a very, very pleasant childhood, um, even my years at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. <laughs> I'm sure many of you are familiar with the biographies of my life written by J.K. Rowling. <laughs> in every talk that I give, I shamelessly self-promote. You've heard a little bit about it already, but I'm just going to tell you again the stuff that I do. So I have a blog, RestlessPilgrim.net. I've had it now for about 10 years, and there I write about sacred scripture, church history, what was the mass like in the first few centuries of the church? I talk about evangelism, apologetics, and C.S. Lewis. And as you heard, I have a C.S. Lewis podcast. It is called Pints with Jack. Here are some very lovely coasters. You need a coaster. Just stick your drink on that. There you go. Uh, we started about two years ago. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later, but basically my co-host and I we worked through the works of C.S. Lewis. So we've gone through the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce. We're currently going through Till We Have Faces. Now, the title for tonight's talk is Tools for Everyday Evangelism. And I'm mainly gonna talk about three tools with emphasis on the last two. And then when I'm done speaking, we'll have a little bit of time for Q&A. So if you have questions, feel free to ask. Um, but if tonight we're going to be talking about talking to people about Jesus, we have to make sure that we continue to talk to Jesus. Uh, so I'd like us to pray, and I'd like to read the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, since I think it's really relevant when, we, when we're talking about evangelism. So if you'll please join me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. St. Francis, pray for us. St. Therese of Lisieux, Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we asked St. Francis to pray for us, because we were praying his prayer. Does anyone know why we asked St. Therese to pray for us? Does anyone know what she's the patroness of? Anyone? She's the patroness of the missions. This little Carmelite nun, cloistered Carmelite nun. Amazing. Let me begin tonight's talk by asking a question. What is the point of the church? I mean... What's it here for? I mean, we, the church does a lot of things, but what is its purpose? Now, I'd say the purpose of the church is to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus and the church that he founded. And I'm not just making this up. The church says this as well. In 1975, Paul VI, he wrote a document. It was a letter that he sent to the bishops called Evangelii Nuntiandi. And for those of you who don't speak fluent Latin, uh, it means evangelization in the modern world. And in his letter, he said this, the task of evangelizing all people constitutes the essential mission of the church. It is the vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. The church exists in order to evangelize. The church exists in order to evangelize. That's why we have a church. That's what it's for. 
But what actually is evangelization or evangelism? Because the images in your head, you might conjure up images of a guy on a street corner with a bullhorn telling passers-by that they're all going to hell. But I would say that evangelism and evangelization is anything that brings people closer to Jesus. That lets people know that God loved them, God made them, and he wants to be in a relationship with them through his church, through the one that he founded. Now, if the purpose of the church is to evangelize, what is the consequence of that for every Christian? If the church exists to evangelize, what does that mean for every Christian? It means that every Christian is a missionary and an evangelist. So it doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, whether you're American or English, although obviously English is better. <laughs> Whoever you are, if you are a baptized Christian, you are called to be a missionary in your day-to-day -day life. Put simply, Jesus is calling you to change the world. We spoke about Star Wars before. Has anyone seen the X-Men movies? Yes. Yeah, oh, pretty good, pretty good. For those of you who haven't seen it, they are a series of mostly good, starting to get rubbish towards the end movies about people with special powers, super abilities. And they are led by a man called Professor Xavier. And he's English, so you know he's good. And his special power is he has the ability to read minds. And I am also English, and little did you know, I can also read minds. Because I can tell you that just now when I was saying that you are each called to be evangelists and missionaries in your day-to-day -day life, I could hear what you were saying. You were saying things like, what, me? Well, that might be true for the people on that table, but, but not me. I mean, I don't know my faith well enough. I mean, somebody might ask me a question that I don't fully understand. I wouldn't know what to say. Does that sound about right? It sounds about right. And honestly, this is really understandable. And even though I'm the guy up at the front with the microphone, I can tell you exactly the same thoughts run through my mind whenever I'm called upon to share my faith or even to give a talk. Several points as I was driving over here, I thought, I wonder if it's too late to cancel. Would Patrick mind? Brianna will kill me. Okay, I'm gonna carry on going. But whenever we are afraid of doing something, it's always really worth asking ourselves, why are we afraid to do it? And I would say that we are primarily afraid to evangelize because we're scared that we don't have what it takes, that it's beyond our ability, that we're not up to the task. But the good news here is that I am not the one telling you to go and do this. The person telling you to go and do this is Jesus. He told his disciples in the Great Commission, go forth to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And if Jesus is the one telling you to go do this, that means he's going to be with you when you go do it. My favorite, favorite Bible passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And in it, St. Paul talks about when he had been praying to the Lord about a particular problem that he had. And he kept asking the Lord to take it away. And Jesus responds, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So if you don't feel like you can really do this whole evangelization thing, that's great, because it means that there's more room for God to act. There's more, uh, there's more facility for the Holy Spirit to act through you, because you don't think you can do this in your own strength, which is good, because you can't. 
All that God asks of you is that you be willing. So let's talk about these tools of evangelization. The first tool is your life. Your life is a tool of evangelization. And I'm going to be a little brief here, but there was absolutely no way that I could talk about evangelization without mentioning the way you live your life. Because we're called to evangelize in both word and deed, by the things that we say and the things that we do. Because a life that's lived in stark contrast to the standards of this world is going to speak much more powerfully than any moralizing sermon. How you live matters. People do notice. And Pope Paul VI, he said this in that document, Evangelii Nuntiandi. He said, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are first witnesses. So how we live our lives is supremely important. But we've got to be careful that we don't delude ourselves, because that's very easy. Because I was that guy for years who would say, oh yeah, I evangelize in the way that I live my life. It sounds very holy, very confident. And then one day, one of my friends asked me a basic question. Hey David, what is it about the way that you live your life that you think so clearly reveals Jesus to other people? What is it about the way that you go about your day and your life that makes people reconsider their own choices? I was like a deer in headlights. Nobody had ever asked me that before. I had to think. And I came up with it. I am nice. <laughs> My friend didn't look very convinced, so I knew I had to come up with a better answer. So I had a quick think, and then I got it. I am polite. I am nice and polite. I say please and thank you, even when I don't have to. My friend did not seem very convinced by this. I think either by the idea that I would bring somebody to Jesus by saying please and thank you, or even really that I'm that nice of a guy. So actions are good, but they're not enough. Going back to Pope Paul VI again, he says the good news proclaimed by the witness of life, so the things that you do, sooner or later has to be proclaimed by the word of life, what we say. And he goes so far as to say there is no true evangelization if the name, teaching, the life, the promises, and the kingdom, and the mystery of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, are not proclaimed. So actions are supremely important. But we mustn't think that we'll never have to speak up or say that dangerous name in public, Jesus. So that was the first tool of evangelization. Your very lives, by what you say and what you do. And before I tell you about the second tool for evangelization, I think I should tell you a little bit more about my own spiritual journey. I think it'll help, and I'm also a little vain, so I like talking about myself. Now, I grew up in a good Catholic home. We went to Mass every Sunday. My mum took us. My sister was a catechist with the children's liturgy, and I was an altar server, which I think is wonderful. It, the Catholic Church's demonstration of faith and hope is seen right there, and the fact that we would take an eight-year-old boy put him in a long flowing robe in public and then hand him a naked flame, a, a candle or a incenser full of burning coals. And they think nothing's gonna go wrong. I was an altar server for about a decade and a half. Trust me, I've pretty much lit everything on fire that is flammable in the church. 
But anyway, back to my home. We would say grace before meals, we would pray before going to bed, and my parents sacrificed a lot to send me to Catholic school, which I somehow managed to survive with my faith intact. A few years later, I was introduced by my former housemaster to the bishop, and I was, this is David. He went to the school, and he's still Catholic. <laughs> you know your Catholic education isn't that great if you're the rarity. But it was at university where my faith really, really came alive. And it primarily happened through a lady who was called Maeve. She was a missionary, uh, a sister. And with a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit, she really set my faith on fire. Because there was something about her that I just knew I was attracted to. She had something in the way that she lived that I knew that I wanted in my own life. And she was part of a community that was called Verbum Day. You've heard of groups like Casio, Opus Dei, Casio. Verbum Day is a very similar kind of community that you had uh, made up of sisters, priests, and laity. And one of the things that they did in my town is that they organized these prayer groups after mass. And the way that it would work is we would have a missionary would come and speak to us for about 10 to 15 minutes on a particular subject. It would be something like the Holy Spirit or faith or baptism. And after we'd had that little talk, we would then have about 10 to 15 minutes of silence to pray. And we were given a sheet of letterhead paper and on it would be some small quotations from scripture that related to the topic at hand. And it was at one of those meetings after mass that I came across the prophet Jeremiah. Now, this was a passage that I had read before. I, I knew it. But that night it was utterly different. It was like the Holy Spirit had gone over that passage with a highlighter to get my attention. This is what it said. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Like I said, I had read that before, but this was the first time that really hit me. It wasn't just God talking through some prophet many, many years ago. It was God speaking to me that night in Southampton, England. I realized that my life had meaning and purpose. And I, I started recognizing something within me that I knew I was searching for. I would later call it a God-shaped hole. It was, it was like someone had turned on a homing beacon inside of me. Around the same time, I came across the words of St. Augustine. He said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. And I recognized that. I felt restless for something, and it seemed to be pointing to God. Ever had that experience when you encounter some beauty, you hear some amazing music, you see a sunset, a sunrise, an amazing landscape, and something in your heart leaps, and you know that there's a place where this beauty comes from, where there's even more beauty. I saw that as a signpost pointing to God. As the great prophet Bruce Springsteen said, everybody has a hungry heart. And also, my guy, C.S. Lewis, I would later then come to read what he had to say on the matter. And he said that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. And he says, you know, Ducklings want to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Man's hungry, well, there's such a thing as food. And he then says, if I have within myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, well, then that tells me I was made for another world. You ever felt that? Hungry for something that you can't quite put your finger on? Now, while I've been going to Mass every Sunday and saying my prayers, 
This experience, that night in that prayer group, changed everything. It changed how I viewed the world. It changed how I viewed my priorities. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, he's a, a Protestant pastor by the name of Francis Chang. He says, our greatest fear shouldn't be failure, but succeeding at the wrong things. I went into university to do a computer science degree to become the next Bill Gates. After this experience, I started to adjust my priorities a little bit. And it changed how I understood God and how I viewed him. I started to understand that there was this all-holy God who made me, and he deserved everything that I could possibly give him. And seeing how I consistently kept falling short. But at this point, I was diving into scripture and reading about Jesus, that he came to take the punishment for my sin and to give me the life that I needed to draw me back and draw me into eternal relationship with God. And that quickly sent me back to confession. Now, the important thing to emphasize at this point in my life is that I was part of a vibrant community of Catholics, many of whom were my own age. They cared about growing in their faith. They cared about sharing the gospel. And we would meet together at least once a week for formation, for prayer. We would go to mass together and we'd just hang out together just in our free time. Unfortunately, after university, things went awry. Because I got a job and moved to a new town where I didn't know anybody. And I just assumed that I would go to Mass and I would find new friends. And I left incredibly disappointed. There was no young adult ministry. As far as I could see, there was no ministries at all. Everyone there to my... <laughs> I was 22 at the time. Everyone there seemed about a million years old. I'm guessing, looking back, they were probably about my age at this point. <laughs> But the place just seemed dead, and it didn't help that the music was abysmal. And to add insult to injury, the company that had brought me to this town that I had moved for, I worked there three days, and then the company went bankrupt. I love the fact that some people respond immediately by laughing. Uh, it wasn't anything I did, I swear. Uh, they had uh, overspent, and uh, they didn't get a big contract that they had thought was in the bag. But this left me in an unfamiliar town with no friends, no faith community, and now no job. And so needless to say, I was feeling quite low. And so as a result of this, one Sunday after I had, uh, I was walking back from mass after having endured an incredibly tedious sermon, I did what a lot of Catholics end up doing. I wandered into a non-Catholic church and the difference was remarkable. It was there in that Protestant community that I found what I had been looking for. I was given an incredibly warm welcome. Well, as warm a welcome as is possible for the English. We're not a very affectionate people. <laughs> but for the English, they were very, they were very kind. You know, they, they shook my hand as I came in. They escorted me to a seat. And after the service was over, random strangers came up to welcome me to their community. When was the last time something like that happened when you were visiting a new parish? And God made really good use of that Protestant community. Because during my time there, I really grew in my faith. I grew in my love of scripture. Uh, they, in very short order, encouraged me to go and help out with the youth group, which was terrifying. Have you, have you met teenagers? Yeah. <laughs> but I had found a group of Christians my own age. I had friends, I had found a home. And it would be many years 
before I would rediscover the truth of Catholicism and come home full-time to the Catholic Church. And I eventually did return, and it was a result of, I started noticing that the theology I was hearing from the pulpit varied on which of the assistant pastors was preaching. And I started seeing issues with a fundamental Protestant doctrine called sola scriptura, the idea that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sole infallible rule of faith. I started seeing that this had some serious scriptural, logical, and historical problems. And as I dug into history, I came to see that the Catholic Church was the church that Jesus founded. So I returned to the Catholic Church, and even that journey wasn't straightforward. But again, God looked after me. He brought knowledgeable Catholics around me. Knowledgeable Catholics who loved the Lord and loved the Catholic Church. And I eventually, eventually discovered Jesus in the Eucharist. And to this day, I'm still discovering hidden treasures of the Catholic Church. And contrary to what I often say on Facebook, I'm not perfect, and I don't always live as I should. But the good news is, Jesus isn't done with me yet. Now, why have I told you this story? I've talked about my journey because this is the second tool. The second tool is testimony. In his first epistle, St. Peter, our first pope, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have within you. Now, often this is in reference, what's used in reference to apologetics, but I think it can very much apply to giving your testimony. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. If somebody asked you, why are you Catholic? Why are you a Christian? How would you respond? And your testimony is the story of your journey with God. Your search for him, but more importantly, his pursuit of you. And it's really about his story, what he's done in your life. This is why in 1 John it says, Beloved, it's not that we love God, it's that God loved us first. In Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. God was the one who took the initiative. God is the one who pursues. And God is a primary character in our testimony. Our testimony is a story of how God has moved in your life. And I think being able to give your testimony is one of the most important things you can do in evangelism. It's one of the key tools. It's important because it's biblical. If you read through the New Testament, both in his letters and in Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul repeatedly tells the story of what God has done for him. The other great thing about knowing how to tell your testimony is it's non-threatening. You're not telling someone else what they should believe. You're not telling someone else what they should do. You're telling your story and how God came and pursued your heart. And it's also great because people do want to hear it. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, I once heard that he was in an interview and the reporter said, Mr. Graham, did you ever find church boring? And he said, well, actually, when I was a kid, I found it really boring. But then something happened. What do you think the next question was that the reporter asked? What happened? And I think everybody does really want to know that. Regardless of how they review religion, when somebody says that they've had a powerful experience of God in their life, they want to hear it. I actually got to visit uh, his grave in Charlotte. I was in North Carolina about a month ago. So I got to go to his grave and pray for him and ask him to pray for me. I didn't tell the people there what I was doing. <laughs> the other great thing about your testimony is it's flexible. Now, 
I'm up here with a microphone and you are a captive audience and we've locked the doors so you can't go anywhere so you have to sit and listen to me for 20 minutes. But a testimony doesn't have to be that long. You can adjust it both on the amount of time you have. Sometimes you might just be sitting down with somebody over a cup of coffee. It might be a meal. It might be you're just walking into the elevator so you have a 10, 15 second pitch for why you're Catholic or what God has done in your life. And also, it, you can change it and shape it based on who you're speaking to. So for example, you've heard a sizable chunk of my own testimony. Now, the points that I would emphasize and focus upon would vary depending upon my audience. If I'm speaking to somebody who isn't a Christian, doesn't know about Jesus, I would spend more time talking about that initial encounter with God in sacred scripture. If I'm speaking to somebody who's a Christian but from a non-Catholic background, I might spend a little bit more time talking about how I went away from the Catholic Church and the reasons that ultimately brought me back and led me to conclude that this is Jesus' church. So it's flexible. And also, variety is the spice of life. Everybody has a different testimony. No two are the same. And your testimony might have that, that particular quality that would speak to somebody's heart. Whereas mine, they might just not be able to relate to it at all. And lastly, being able to tell your testimony is good because it's a reminder for us. It's a reminder of our story, what God has done for us. And also a reminder that our conversion isn't over. My story wasn't, I found Jesus, the end, happily ever after. There was much more that happened after that. And even now, I haven't arrived. There's still, there's still more to grow. There's still more to... We, we worship an infinite God. We're never going to run out of wonderful things to learn about him. So, I think every Christian needs to be able to tell their own story. And so here's my suggestion, my invitation to you. Christmas is frantic. Take some time out. Go and do a holy hour and sit down and write your spiritual autobiography. What has God done for you? What were you like before you truly encountered God? Even if you grew up in the faith, I did. But still, there was this moment when I realized that I was choosing this for myself. I wasn't just inheriting my faith from my parents. So what were you like before? What happened? What was the thing that God used to get your attention? And how did you change afterwards? What difference did a relationship with Jesus have in your life? And it doesn't have to be perfect. My own testimony changes and evolves over time as I find better ways of trying to communicate some very difficult things that happened deep in my soul that night when I was reading Jeremiah. And it doesn't have to be sensational. We've all heard the testimonies of, that sound dramatic. You know, somebody was a drug dealing super murderer and then they encounter Jesus and then suddenly they go into the hills and found a monastery and they become an abbot. Those are great, but that isn't necessarily your story. The entire point here is it's authentic. It's how has Christ affected your life? So there's no need to exaggerate. You don't need to be sensational about the depravity because the story of a testimony isn't about your sin. It's about the mercy of God. Testimonies are about extraordinary grace, often in rather ordinary lives. And people do need to hear this story. Because I think very few people ever sit and think, particularly if they've been raised in the faith, they never sit and think about the journey that they've gone on with God. It's a little too easy to take for granted. And when you give your testimony, weave in the gospel. 
You'll notice that I did that when I was speaking about that episode with Jeremiah. And the basic gospel is this. We were made for God. We fall short. Jesus came to save us from this sin and found a church that would give us the sacraments, that would give us life, the divine life, so that we could be with God forever. And I'd also say, don't make the post-conversions part too short. I've heard quite a few testimonies where I spent all the time talking about the sin before, and, it's, and then I found Jesus and everything's great. Because apart from anything else, the person you're telling that to, they're probably going to see you next week uh, as you're in a line to get a coffee and getting all frustrated and angry that the line's taking too long. It's like, well, you know, he said that he'd become a Christian and he was a changed man and I don't, don't know what, if this is really what I want to become. And also include scripture and quotations from the saints. God's word is powerful and the words of the saints are powerful. And once you've written this testimony, then becomes the fun part. Pray for a divine appointment. Ask God to put someone in your life, you can do this every morning, someone in your life that you're going to get to share a little bit of your story with. It might be the long version. It might be the short version. It might just be a small part of your story. But I'm all about premature deployment. You don't have to wait until you are ready because you will never be ready. I'm an engineer, I'm type A. If, if I had my way, no, no software I'd ever write would ever be launched because, oh, I'm just going to fix this little bit. I'm going to make this bit a little bit better. And we can be like that, like that with our faith, particularly when it comes to evangelism. Got to wait until it's perfectly crafted. No. Write your story and learn it. And once you've written your story, you'll start seeing the salient points. You'll see how God has moved in your life because that is what the story is about. About a God who came looking for you. So we looked at the first tool, which was your life. Your life is a tool for evangelism. And the way that you've lived your life will hopefully prompt somebody to ask you questions. And in response, you've shared your testimony and you've perhaps piqued their interest. So the question is, now what? What do you do? What do you do with somebody who is interested in the faith? And this is where the third and final tool comes in. And it's the last thing I'd like to talk about tonight. And it's somewhat surprising. Because I would say that the final tool for evangelism in this talk is community. Because we can often feel a real pressure in evangelism. That we've got to take a complete unbeliever. We've got to take them all the way through RCIA, through baptism, First Holy Communion and Confirmation. And if you are a hyperachiever, maybe take them on to be a cardinal or a pope. <laughs> it's going to happen. But this isn't how St. Paul viewed it. In, when he wrote to the Christians in Corinth, he said, The Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. He planted the seed, somebody else tended to it. We don't have to do evangelization alone. We can take advantage of the fact that God has brought us together, each with our individual gifts and personalities, into a body, a community that we call the church. And I've been privileged to be involved in several people coming into the Catholic Church, but I can assure you I was one part of that. Each of those conversions involved a huge cast of characters that I often get to see then at the Easter Vigil. And you find out the other people that your friend has been telling you about and the difference that they've made in their lives. So this means that as well as evangelizing, we need to contribute to building up the local church 
so that when somebody shows some openness to the faith, we have a community to which we can invite them, where they can learn more, and also where each member of that community can play their part. Now, there's something I've encountered again and again in my adult Catholic life. I've met people who love the Catholic faith, but when I talk this way, when I talk about building up the local church, they feel at a loss as to what they can contribute. They'll say things like, well, I, I don't play an instrument and I don't sing very well, so I can't be in the music group. Uh, I'm not especially good at speaking, so I don't think I'll be a good lector. And I'm very self-conscious, so I don't think I could be an altar server or an usher. What's the common thread among all of those? I can't, and the mass. Actually, I'm going to give you both prizes for that. When people respond to my questions, I give them prizes. So here you go. There's a pints for Jack, poster and sticker. And since that's the answer I was going for, you also get a candy cane. But you guys said it in unison, and that was very cute, so there you go. Yeah, people respond with the mass. And now let me say straight up, it's a praiseworthy and good thing to be involved in these common public lay ministries of the church. And it's a powerful witness when people see young adults participating in mass. However, the point I want to make in this last part of the talk is that there are many other ways to serve Jesus, build up his church, and build the kingdom, rather than simply having a job at mass. So what do I have in mind? I think my approach can be summed up by this quotation from Gil Bailey. He says, don't ask yourself, what the world needs. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask what brings you alive and go do that. Because the world needs people who have come alive. So let me give you some examples of some of the things that I spend my time doing in San Diego. So I love going to the theater and the symphony. So I inaugurated the Finer Things Club and I invite other people to come and join me on my cultural adventures. In fact, often when Americans ask me why I came to America, I often say, cultural missionary. <laughs> I have a green card, you can't kick me out now. <laughs> now, my housemate and I, we decided that we wanted some better accountability in our Christian journeys, so we put together a men's huddle. So a couple of times a month, a few of us would get together, share a beer, and talk about what was going on in our lives. My friend Teresa, she had been to Teze. Does anyone know? what Tessé is. It's this ecumenical monastery in the center of France, and it's developed this style of singing, this chant. And Teresa had been, and I had been, and she said, I'd love to get together at some point and sing some Tessé chant. I said, well, let's make an event of it. And now we do this monthly. So a bunch of people, we go over to her house, we share a common meal, I run through a couple of new songs on the piano, and then we light some candles, and then we pray for about 40 minutes. It's really beautiful. And as you've heard, I've always loved the writings of C.S. Lewis. One day I was at a party and I met Matt. And I started talking about C.S. Lewis, because that's what I do at parties. I'm that cool. <laughs> and I discovered that I was talking to a bigger nerd as I was. In fact, Lewis says in The Four Loves, friendship is born at the moment when one person turns to the other and says, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. And I had said for ages that I wanted to start a C.S. Lewis book club. And so, okay, I have a fellow nerd. Let's, let's pick a date. So we, we picked a coffee shop, picked a date, and we're gonna go and discuss a few chapters of mere Christianity. I posted about it on Facebook, and it transformed from something that was just a couple of C.S. Lewis nerds into a regular group. We've now gone through, I think, about 10 of his books. And it was from that that we launched the podcast, Pints for Jack, 
available at all great places where you get podcasts. And we also had an, just started another spin-off event, which we call an Inklings Evening, where the Inklings were the group that C.S. Lewis uh, met with regularly at the pub and in his rooms, and they would share each other's work and offer constructive criticism. And so what we do is, do you have a piece of literature or a poem that you love? Great. Bring it to the Scotch bar. We'll read it. Tell us why you love it. And it just gives us an opportunity to have some fellowship and also just to find out what everyone else really loves to read. I always loved the poetry of Jared Manley Hopkins. Didn't understand a word of it, but it sounded really pretty. <laughs> but then my, my girlfriend got me a book and we've been slowly reading through it and she was an English major, so she'd been helping me pick apart what he was actually saying. And so it was a wonderful thing to be able to meet up with my friends, read this poem that I've really loved, and explain what's going on and why I think it's great. Now, my point here is just to say, all of these things began by simply doing what I loved and then inviting other people along for the ride. What I was doing was turning my passions into ministries. And the same attitude can be found among my friends. My friend Joseph, after he discovered the Virgin Mary, he decided that he was going to pray the rosary each week and do it on the beach. Now what's funny is when I tell this story, when I'm in other states speaking, you can hear the, Californians. It's like, no, 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 no. It has been very chilly recently. I mean, the other day it got down to like 62, 63. Add to put on a sweater. Please pray for us. Pray for California. But he decided that, okay, I'm going to do this each week. And so each week on Facebook, he'd post, okay, it's Tuesday. I'm going to walk on the beach at this time, pray the rosary. Join me if you'd like. My friend Corrine, she was really troubled by the amount of homelessness she saw in downtown San Diego. So she started preparing food and then driving downtown and giving it out. And other people started to join her. And now they have a, quite a sophisticated operation. Now my friend Joe. Joe, he really likes scotch. So he decided to get a group of people together, bring his scotch collection, and teach people the finer art of scotch tasting. Now, all of these things, I'm seeing some faces, people looking like, we are totally doing that. <laughs> Now, all of these things, they help build community, they deepen spirituality, and just generally make the world a better place, particularly the Scotch. But not only that, there are now all of these groups in San Diego to which I can invite people, non-Christians, non-Catholics, and even those who are on the periphery of the parish, because it's far easier to invite those people, non-Christians, non-Catholics, and people that you just occasionally see at Mass, it's much easier to invite them to scotch tasting on Saturday night rather than perhaps mass on Sunday morning. And it's very low pressure. And it helps you transform acquaintanceships into deeper friendships. Frederick Buchner said, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The place where God calls you to, so your vocation, is the place where your deep gladness, so all the things that you really care and love, is the place where those things and the world's deep hunger, all that people need, it's where those two things meet. So obviously the question then is, well, what about you? What are the things that you enjoy? Where do you see an unmet need in the church? Where do you feel a tug of the Holy Spirit? And I want to make it very clear. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to start this. It doesn't even have to be complicated. So I'm just going to use up the final few minutes of this talk 
to just give you a bunch of ideas as to what you can do to help build up the Catholic community here in Imperial Valley. Firstly, social activities. Maybe you like a sport. Volleyball, basketball, ultimate frisbee. Just assemble a few friends for a game at the weekend and invite some of your non-Catholic friends to join you. This might be the first time they ever get to hang out with a bunch of Catholics. Just make sure that they're not super competitive over whatever sport you're playing. We've had some unfortunate events in Ultimate Frisbee in San Diego when people take things a little seriously. If you're a very sociable person, if you're that person who is always chatting after mass, then I would simply suggest make it a point that you always have to find somebody else that you don't know and welcome and speak to them before you go and speak to your friends. Remember what happened in my story. In large part, I left because nobody spoke to me. So try and speak to visitors. Because you don't know, this might be the first time they have stepped foot into a Catholic church for a long time, maybe even ever. And then go and invite them to coffee and donuts afterwards. Maybe you could open up your house one night a month for drinks for your neighbors. You could set up a men's group. I'm always stunned that there are so few men's groups in parishes, but they are the easiest things to set up. You know why? Men have really low standards. <laughs> Turn up, bring beer, done. It's like, this men's ministry stuff is easy. You don't know what the girls keep on complaining about. But you could build it around beverages, like microbrews or scotches or something like that, or it could be food. You could smoke some meat, you could gather around the barbecue, you know, all the men staring there, you know, it's like, and then theologizing as you're talking. You could go hiking, you could go camping, or you could be around some common activity like woodworking. I, I can't even put up a shelf. If anyone in my parish said, hey, I'm gonna teach you how to do this, I'm gonna teach you how to build a bookcase. It's like, I'm there, I've become a real man. I'm a software engineer, I just spend all day just typing away at my, actually I have a fantastic job, all I have to do is sit down and type, and they just give me lots of free snacks. Anyway, um, perhaps you could host a movie night at your home. And this is the most low pressure of options that you've got. Because you, also you can invite people that you don't really know very well. All you have to do is provide a movie, bring snacks and don't talk over the movie. And it's actually something of a speciality among my friends in San Diego. We have what we call ostentatious evenings, where we watch a Jane Austen adaptation, we drink tea and eat scones. It's delightful and very, very classy. But if that's not your speed, maybe you could try an epic movie night. So the only rule is, Whatever movie you're watching, it has to be epic. So I'm thinking Braveheart, Gladiator, Pacific Rim. Anything that just makes you go, <laughs> Or if you're more into fantasy, you could do Lord of the Rings. At the beginning of this year, we got the extended editions and we watched it over three weekends with a different person hosting each time. And there were bonus points to anybody who turned up dressed as an elf or brought hobbit snakes. Oh my God. <laughs> So those were social activities. What about service activities? This is really simple. If you're gonna go to a food drive, invite a friend. If a couple at your parish has had a new child, get a few people together, cook them a meal. If you're a little braver, you could even babysit so they can go out on a date or you know, just drive around the corner and just sleep in the car for a couple of hours, whatever they want to do. In San Diego, a bunch of us guys, we got together and we cooked all of the ladies in our community dinner. So we were the cooks, we were the servers, and we provided entertainment on the altar of dignity and serenaded them. So what about faith-building activities? 
Again, it doesn't have to be complicated. If you're going to go to adoration, post about it on Facebook, tell people you're getting ice cream afterwards. People tend to turn up. If you're really enjoying a book and you're chatting with somebody and they show a little bit of interest in it, buy them a copy of the book, bam, you've now got a book club. They didn't even have to agree to it. It's wonderful. <laughs> if there's a face-based movie coming out, let people know that you're going. Assemble a group. Or it could simply be as simple as picking up a six-pack of beers and inviting some of your friends over to drink said beers and talk about the readings coming up this Sunday at Mass. Friends, if you're doing any of these things, you're doing ministry and you're building up the local church. And the formula is simple. Do what you love and invite other people along for the ride. Remember the feeding of the 5,000. The Lord is very good at taking our meager offerings and doing great things with them. And when you're doing this, you're strengthening the church and you're building a community to which you can then invite people who haven't yet met either Jesus or the Catholic Church. In the early church, they stood out against pagan society. The pagans would comment about the Christians. They would say, see how they love one another. We need to be doing the same thing today because that's how they converted an entire empire. But even if some of these suggestions seem too intimidating, the good news is you don't have to do this alone. You can reach out to the diocese. The entire purpose of Patrick's office is to help you, to support you as you help build the kingdom. You can also reach out to your pastor. He's there to help. And I've spent a lot of time in this last tool. It might sound like I'm saying that, okay, laity do everything. I don't want it to be interpreted as that we're meant to throw off our clergy and just do our own thing. Don't, you don't get invited back if you say things like that. <laughs> we're called to work in concert with our priests because he's just one man with one pair of hands. And as far as we can tell, one outfit. I have often wondered, when you open up a priest's closet, is it just like one black shirt or is it just like a row of black shirts? I'm not quite sure. But you might simply just go up to your priest and say, Father, how can I help? And then once you've picked him up off the ground because he's fainted in shock from somebody actually asking him this question, he can then tell you what, what does his parish need? What need does he see as your spiritual father, as the shepherd of the flock? And this is exactly the kind of thing that the Second Vatican Council was encouraging. It wanted the laity to step up and do their job, to help build the kingdom out there, to build a community in the church to which new newcomers could be invited. And the thing is, if we do that, then our priests get to be priests. They get to celebrate the sacrament and shepherd souls. Now, my enemy, the clock, is forcing me to wrap up. But hopefully, over the course of this talk, I've made a case for the three effective tools for evangelization. The first is how you live your life. If you live a life of holiness, it will prompt people to ask questions. And you then respond with the second tool, your testimony. You tell the person about your journey with the Lord, sharing both the gospel and what God has done in your life. And lastly, we spend some time talking about how you can put all of the gifts and passions that are unique to you at the service of the kingdom to help build a community which is welcoming to newcomers. Just imagine with me for a moment what this diocese would look like if everybody did that. It would, all, it would just be utterly unrecognizable. And it all begins with that first step, trying to become a saint. Let's just end in prayer 
I'd like to end with a prayer of St. John Henry Newman, who is an Englishman and therefore, you know, he's good stuff. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.